Hello, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. We're in the second Sunday of Lent, so the story from the Gospel of Mark is the transfiguration of the Lord on Mount Tabor. But we also hear a story from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, about Abraham's uh, being called to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. You know, in the stories of the scriptures today, it's a story of two mountains. And it's always a story about redemption and God's call to sacrifice. St. Paul talks about it in his lecture. And so today on Oro Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about the transfiguration, the sacrifice or the attempted sacrifice of Isaac, which is called the Akedah amongst the, uh, the Jewish people. And then uh, what St. Paul has to say about all in the book of Romans. Stay tuned. So today in the Gospel from Mark is the story of the Transfiguration, where Jesus t takes Peter, James, and John up to the high mountain, and in front of them he is transfigured. His clothing, Mark's Gospel says, and remember, Mark draws his Gospel from Peter, who's one of the people on the mountain. Jesus' clothing is transfigured bright white, and this light comes from him. And on either side, uh, Moses and Elijah uh, appear. And God's voice comes from the clouds and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So why is this story being told? I mean, why does Jesus do this? You can understand why Jesus uh, heals people, why he forgives sins, why he casts out demons. Because from our perspective, gosh, that's very useful. Thank you for doing that. But there are other stories in the Gospel, Mark, and all the stories, which are more about a display of who Jesus is. When Jesus walks on the water, it recalls the story of creation, where God brings order out of the chaos of the, of the waters by separating them and creating a place for the world to exist. For the Israelites, who are not an ocean-going people, aside from some stories of fishing on the Sea of Galilee, they're the only story I think we have of uh, Jewish people going on the ocean and badly. Jonah goes on the ocean and gets pitched overside and eaten by a large fish. Paul goes with his uh, Roman guards on the ocean and is shipwrecked off Malta. I'm not sure anybody ever makes a real serious uh, ocean voyage. I'm being a little facetious about that. But there's a reason why Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up the mountain to behold that transfiguration. Because remember how the story ends? He talks about how in the mountaintop experience, you got to go back down into the valley. We have highs and lows in our spiritual experience, but Jesus is saying where the redemption is won is down in the valley where he will suffer and die. And if you turn to the end of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus and the, and the disciples leave the Last Supper and they go across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember the three people with him as he enters into his time of prayer before he's arrested 
are Peter, James, and John. So there is some reason why these three are chosen to be on the Mount of the Transfiguration and the place where he is seized, arrested, and ultimately the Paschal Mystery is enacted. And the Paschal Mystery is always from the Last Supper to the Ascension of the Lord. It's this understanding of the Passover, how it is that we're redeemed. So before I talk about the book of Genesis and the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is how we understand the story of the transfiguration, let's just go through a couple of the important points of this story. I think everybody knows it well. I, I just told you the essential parts of it. His clothing is transfigured. If everything about him is transfigured. You remember when Moses goes up the mount in Sinai and he comes out of the, uh, the tent of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is. Remember, he covers his face because it's glowing, um, because he's been in the presence of God. Well, Jesus is God, and so the glowing, he's the source of it. If Moses is like the moon, a reflected light, Jesus is like the sun. And so the second aspect of the story, why Moses and Elijah? Uh, why not the patriarchs or I Isaiah, who's quoted more in the New Testament, hands down, than anything Elijah ever said? Well, here's the reason Moses and Elijah are there. First, they represent the law because Moses is the lawgiver and the prophet, and they come and they're conversing with Jesus. And uh, what they're talking about is this exodus, according to the other gospels, that like Moses made an exodus from Egypt with the people of Israel, Jesus is leading an, an, exodus, an exodus. But there's another important point that is here about Moses and Elijah. Remember, Moses on a mountain Sinai was permitted to see God. He couldn't see his face. He could only see God's backside. And do you remember Elijah in Kings when he fled Ahab and Jezebel because they were going to kill him? And he fled to a mountain, Sinai, mountain in Sinai um, where yeah, the same mountain apparently Moses was on. Remember, God says he's going to pass by. And there's a, a strong wind. There's an earthquake. There's all sorts of these deep statements of power. But then comes this small whispering sound according to the story. And Elijah covers his face because God is passing by. So why are Moses and Elijah there? Because they both know what God looks like. And so there, there is eyewitnesses to Peter, James, and John from the tradition of the people of Israel. And then um, there's a, another thing to, to think about. And that is how Peter talks about erecting tents or booths. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is set in September, and it's a, basically a, har a harvest feast. But it also had a meaning apparently among some of the rabbis as a precursor of the age to come. Because remember, the Jewish people, when they fled Egypt, led by Moses, they led in tents, they lived in tents out in the desert. And so it's the idea that God would lead them once again out of this world. Um, the, the Feast of uh, Booze is described in Leviticus 23. Uh, but it's a feast of thanksgiving. And then the, another thing I'd like to point out to you, 
You know, uh, when God comes in the Old Testament, not always, but often, uh, his presence is manifested in a cloud. And so, sure enough, a cloud comes down at the transfiguration in this story. And again, it's God's presence. But I'd like to put all that aside for a minute and point out something obvious. The roles that mountains play in religion generally, but in in, uh, Israel in particular. Think of all the mountains. We're going to talk about the Akedah in a moment, Abraham's uh, attempt to sacrifice Isaac. But that's Mount Moriah. Remember that Mount Ararat earlier in the book of Genesis. That's where Moses' ark landed. Then there's the mountain in Sinai, isn't there? Um, And we know that the Jewish people worshipped on mountains because Mount Zion is a mountain, and that's where the temple was built. And in the north, in the rebellious tribes, they built uh, their temples on mountains too. So mountains are always where God is is, uh, encountered. And so we turn to Genesis chapter 22, which is the story of uh, Abraham's uh, sacrifice of uh, Isaac. And that is a weird story. I, mean, I remember when our, our scripture teachers taught it in the seminary, that just on historical terms, it's a tough one to make sense of because there isn't any real evidence that the Jewish people, the Israelites, ever sacrificed children. They sacrificed pigeons and lambs and goats. The cultures around them, especially the Babylonians and the Canaanites, they sacrificed children. Um, The Greeks sacrificed children. Famously, Agamemnon sacrificed his own daughter, Iphigenia, uh, as part of this whole myth of the Iliad so that he could satisfy Artemis and sail off to, uh, off to the uh, war at Troy. But when they talk about the sacrifice of Isaac, it doesn't make much sense because there's not any real evidence that the Jewish people ever sacrificed children. And so one, my scripture scholar, they're always looking to try to make some practical sense out of these stories, whether for good or for ill, that's what they do. So they think maybe it's the kind of story that was supposed to explain to the Jewish people, the Israelites, um, why they didn't sacrifice kids like the powerful cultures around them that sacrificed human beings. The Phoenicians sacrificed human beings. And we know in our own hemisphere, the Aztecs did it. There's some evidence that humans were sacrificing, cannibalized in, in uh, northern New Mexico. Um, so it's, this, it's apparently this worldwide practice. But the story where God calls Abraham to take his only son and take him up in a mountain and sacrifice him really only makes sense in light of the New Testament. Are you willing to believe that the reason that the story of Abraham and Isaac is in the book of Genesis is to prepare us to understand uh, what sacrifice really is? Because remember, when Jesus is executed on the cross, he's just one of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people that were uh, crucified. The uh, historian Josephus said that when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in the, uh, 
and, and destroy the temple in the year 70, that they were crucifying 500 Jews a day. They deforested the area around uh, Jerusalem. But the Romans did that, that's unquestionable. Even they talked about it. They wanted you to know they were the scariest people on the block. Um, but you don't hear much about that, but clearly it did happen. And in fact, about 70 years before Jesus was born, if you ever saw the movie Spartacus starting uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, that's actually a true story. And at the end of that, that was a slave army that uh, they had 2,000, according to Roman records, 2,000 of those rebellious slaves crucified along the Appian Way uh, as, a, as a message to other slaves not to rebel. So that the Jews would, that the Roman people would, would kill people like that is uh, just part of their culture. The Jews, not so much. They're just not known for it. There is the stories in the Old Testament about the ban where you're supposed to kill every man, woman, and child, all the goats and lambs and bulls. You're supposed to take all of their stuff, put it in a big pile, and burn it. And, you know, that, that, is, that is interpreted spiritually that you cannot make peace with sin. You cannot make peace with non-belief. Uh, that's the meaning of the story. Because historically, there just isn't much evidence that the Jewish people were that bloodthirsty that they did any of that stuff. And so the story of the Akedah is uh, Abraham and Isaac in this sacrifice. Um, this sticks out like a sore thumb. Did you know that there's only one other story in all of the um, Old Testament about a member of the tribes of Israel uh, sacrificing someone. It's the story of Jephthah, and it's in the what? Uh, it's in the um, the eleventh chapter of the book of Judges, and in that story, Jephthah is uh, he's a son by a concubine, I think, of the judge Gideon, who's his famous judge. But his brothers kick him out because they don't have the same mother and they don't want to share what Gideon left with Jephthah. So this poor guy gets kicked out uh, of uh, the house and he marries, he has a family. And then when the brothers, who all have a common father, have trouble, they call on Jephthah to come and get him out of trouble and fight this war for him. And as they're going into battle, Jephthah prays to God and he says, this is starting at... Uh, Verse 29 of uh, the chapter. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and through Mitzpah of Gilead as well. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he crossed over against the Ammonites. That's who they're going to fight, the ancient enemy. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you deliver the Am Ammonites into my power, he said, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return from the Ammonites in peace shall belong to the Lord. I shall offer him up as a burnt offering. And so that's chapter 11 of Judges, verses 29 to 31. And sure enough, he defeats the, um, the uh, Ammonites. But you know this story's not going to end well. If you go down to uh, verse 34, when, when Jethro returned to his house in Mitzpah, it was his daughter who came out to meet him with tambourine playing and dancing. She was happy to see dad was home. 
She was his only child. He had neither son nor daughter beside her. And when he saw her, he tore his garment, which is always a sign of grief or rage, and said, Ah, my daughter, you struck me down and brought calamity upon me. For I have made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Father, she replied, you have made a vow to the Lord. Do with me as you have vowed. Wow. So she, he gives her a little time to go up into the hills and uh, mourn her virginity. Then he comes back and he sacrifices her. But that's the only other sacrifice of a father of a child. And it's his only child in, uh, in the book of Judges, which chronologically would be after this story. So I don't know what you make of it um, in terms of just trying to understand it in an ancient Jewish uh, context, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. But it makes great sense to us Christians. Think about it like this. So you know why Jews don't sacrifice their children? Why does God send his only beloved son to be sacrificed? Remember he said to Abraham, because he wouldn't withhold his own son, uh, his beloved Isaac, what he said was, that he would make him a blessing on all the nations um, and that uh, his descendants would be as countless as the stars in the sky. So how is Abraham a blessing on all nations? How does God's word of prophecy come true? Think about this. If you read, listen carefully to the book of Genesis chapter 22 and the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Isaac carries the wood because, that he's going to be burned on after he's sacrificed, although he doesn't know it, that he's going to be sacrificed. Jesus carries the wood, knowing it, the wood of the cross. Isaac is an only son. Jesus is an only son. Abraham's promised he'll be a blessing on all nations. Jesus brings a blessing on all nations through the forgiveness of sins when it, in, his, in his death. In the book of Genesis, it says that as they were carrying the wood of the cross, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and said, uh, and laid his son Isaac on it while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two walked together, Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, Father, he said, here I am, he replied. And Isaac continued, here are the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? My son Abraham answered, God will provide the sheep for the burnt offering. Then the two walked on together. St. John the Baptist, all we Christians know Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so um, the stuff of Jesus' crucifixion is not made up. This story is one of the powerful stories about Abraham, who's the father of all the people of Israel. Um, all the people of faith, he's our father and that God would provide the sacrifice. Do you see Christians see this um, as a story explaining uh, the crucifixion of Jesus? I'll leave you with one last thing. So this is a story of two mountains, and the mountains are not Moriah and Zion. The mountains are Jesus transfigured on, uh, on the Mount Tabor, and Jesus crucified on Mount Sinai, Calvary, right? Because Calvary is just on Mount Sinai. Well, if you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, and it's the only other reference to Moriah in the entire scriptures, I believe, except for Genesis 22. In 2 Chronicles, it's the story of Solomon building the 
temple on, um, on Mount Zion, that he's finishing the work that his father started. Here's what Chronicles 3.1 says. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, which had been shown to David his father in the place David had prepared, the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Mount Moriah is Mount Zion. They're the same place. So the sacrifice of Isaac, the sacrifice of Jesus, take place on the same mountain. You know, there's one other thing that I don't think I've ever talked about it. It's about the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, when on the temple, which is where they would sacrifice all those lambs, they said that on Passover, several hundred thousand lambs would be sacrificed because so many people came to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. But believe it, that a lot of animals were sacrificed. In kosher, you can't consume meat with blood in it. So apparently what they would do is herd the sheep up, lay people would slice their throats, and then a priest or a Levite would capture the blood in a big pail. They would then go to the altar, and there was the two holes that were part of a drainage system, and I think they were called the nostrils, like breathing. But there were two holes, and the, if you poured it down the holes, the blood went down a drainage pipe out into the Kidron Valley where there was a little creek. So if you were approaching Jerusalem on Passover and you crossed over the Kidron, the little creek in the bottom of the Kidron Valley, what you'd see is blood and water mixed together coming from the side of the temple. Now, where have you heard that before? It's at the end of the Gospel of John where the eyewitness said what he saw coming from the side of Jesus was blood and water, just like from the side of the temple. And so when you look at this story from Genesis and the story of this uh, execution of Jesus, what makes Jesus' execution a sacrifice? His self-giving at the Last Supper, the night before he dies. But all the imagery surrounding it is the imagery of a father who provides his only beloved son in order uh, to redeem us from our sins. And if you turn to Romans, which is the reading for today, um, Romans chapter uh, chapter eight, it's this St. Paul. And you remember what St. Paul says? Because the gospel is the story of Jesus. Paul's preaching is an understanding that first, set, first generation of Jewish followers how they understood what Jesus did. And so I'm just gonna walk through it, uh, chapter eight, uh, verses 31b through 34, which was the second reading today. And listen to how, G how St. Paul talks about it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, he's referring to the omnipotence of God, right? The all, that God is all powerful. Then Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all, how will he not also give us everything else along with him? So he's referring to God's charity, which is in the first reading in Genesis, is, as Abraham says, God provides the sacrifice. God gives far more than we could ever hope to deserve. And then St. Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who acquits us, 
Who can condemn? Well, God alone judges. Romans can crucify people, but everyone survives death, right? And so if you really cannot end another person's existence, what power do you really have? Very limited. Christ Jesus, Paul continues, it is who died, or rather was raised, who also is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. That is the shortest expression of the Paschal mystery. Christ is crucified, Christ rises from the dead, and Christ is at the right hand of God in his body. Let's take a moment in conclusion and think about what we're preparing for in Holy Week. And so the story of Abraham and the transfiguration. What is God telling us? Well, Jesus says it very clearly. What God wants is mercy, not sacrifice. And so this Lent, we do the works of mercy. We give alms. We pray for one another. We pray that God helps us to follow his son more faithfully. We discipline ourselves from, from fast by fasting. This is how Jesus taught us to live. And in Lent, we prepare for Holy Week where it's, it really is um, more elevated. We prepare for Holy Week by how we live uh, the Fridays of Lent and each day of Lent. Because the Paschal mystery is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's there in his body, which is this shocking belief. But he's there in his body. He makes perpetual intercession for us. The atonement is being carried out even now. Jesus is not still suffering, but Jesus is still offering. And what he's offering is us, just like we offer ourselves at every Mass. So Mount Moriah, where God said he doesn't need us to kill each other. He really doesn't need what we have, what he wants is mercy because he shows mercy. On Mount Tabor, Jesus is revealed in his divinity and at the same time talks about what's going to happen down in the valley in the Paschal mystery. And so as we participate in Lent and we think of how much we love being together, the music, uh, how beautiful Christian worship is, remember that we follow Jesus in the valley where it's difficult but he's given us every way to understand what suffering is and what our works of charity actually mean. Because God is omnipotent. God is charitable. God alone judges. And Christ is the Paschal mystery that reveals to us the meaning of our own lives. And so the tale of two mountains, how God prepares in the Old Testament for us to understand what his only, his only begotten son, his beloved son, will do here amongst us. And so this Lent, we study what Jesus has done, and we follow faithfully. God bless you. Hope to see you at the Stations of the Cross or at Weekend Mass. But if you're staying at home because you feel safer there, remember us all in your prayers, because you are always in mind. This has been Oral Valley Catholic.